Let's begin. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, again, we gather here before you to seek to know you better, to study your word, to draw closer to you through it, to understand how we are to relate to you, how we are to be your royal priesthood. So I ask that you give us clarity, help us to see your word as you intended it to be seen, to see the connections that can be challenging for us with our veiled eyes. Help us to to know you through this. We ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, so now we are in week four of our journey through the priesthood. And uh, I hope it hasn't been too overwhelming so far. There's been a lot to kind of throw at you guys. Um, this week is, uh, well, it's challenging because how do you condense everything to say about the Levitical priesthood into an hour? Um, so we'll see how we do. Um, before we begin, uh, I just want to say that I have two more classes after this, and then we'll, I think we're breaking for the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm fixing to, so you all can come if you want, but I won't be here. Um, but after that, I will not be teaching for a couple weeks because my dad is going to teach this class. So, I don't know, some of you may have met him already, uh, and he is a very able teacher of the Word. So, he's going to be up here for the the Wednesday after Thanksgiving and the Wednesday after that. So, he will be teaching in my stead, and uh, then after that, I'll come up for one or two more classes and just kind of tie everything up into a nice Christmas present. Um, so that's the plan going forward, just so you guys know, when you come back after Thanksgiving, and I, I mean, I'll be here, but I'm not up here, we're still continuing on. So just to give you some context, though, for what the plan is with him is next week, this week we're going to talk about the Levitical priesthood, next week we're going to talk about David as a priest, and then after the final week before Thanksgiving... I am going to sort of pull all this together, and we're going to look at Jesus Christ as our great high priest. So in some ways, that's going to be a a culmination of where we've been going through all of this and pulling all the strands together. But then after Thanksgiving, what my dad's going to tackle is 1 Peter 2.9 for two weeks and talk about how all of this relates to each one of us as we are all royal priests and what that means for us today, how we approach God, how we are to live our lives, so on, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to make it a little more, uh, I don't like to say application, applicable, but it'll make more sense in terms of how it affects each one of us. Why does all this matter? Um, So that's where we're going. And then at the end... After that, I think I'm going to have kind of a one-off class that I'm going to kind of touch on things a little bit tonight, but I'm going to talk about the Garden of Eden and the Mount and Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple and the new heaven and the new earth and how all of those things are related to, to God's throne room and where are the priests serving in effect. Um, and then I'll just do one last class kind of pulling everything together and just kind of summarizing just so you guys know where we're going. So, um, okay, so speaking of summarizing, I I want to begin again like I did last week and just kind of recount each of the steps that we've been taking up till now, uh, because it's a lot, and I want you guys to, and each step kind of keeps spilling over into the next, and so I want you to be able to see what it is that we, where we're going with all of this. So, So that being said, who was the first priest? Adam. Adam and Eve both were priests. God made them to be, you know, they are, I mean, 
In almost every other town in the world, it wouldn't be ironic to say this, because here, you know, we say Mount Shasta is where heaven and earth meet. But, but <laughs> biblically speaking, you know, Adam and Eve, humanity, each one of us, is intended to be the place where heaven and earth meet, because we are made from the dust of the earth, we are of the earth, and yet we are also made in the image of God. So we are the place where God and his creation meet. And so Adam and Eve were made to, they were image bearers of God, and they were made to mediate between God and his creation. He sent them, he told them to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. He wanted them to rule in his stead. They are representatives of the king, and they are to mediate between him and his creation. They are also to be fruitful and multiply, which is to be, it's not just saying have kids, it's saying produce more image bearers, make more priests, make more people or places or, you know, that where the divine and the creation meet. So that, that was part of their priestly task. Adam's priestly task as the high priest was to mediate God's will to Eve not to eat of the fruit. Did he succeed in that? No, he fails. He's not the last high priest that's going to fail. This is going to become a pattern. So, hang on. Um, but this was the original purpose of humanity. The garden was the place where people were in the presence of God and they had his blessing. But that's going to be lost. And after it's lost, we're going to see this priestly function continue. As I, I, You can go back and listen to the classes. I didn't dwell on it, though. But we see priestly activity in Cain, Abel, Seth, and Noah, especially Noah, as he's building altars and making sacrifices and mediating covenants with God. But then the next big step is with Abraham. And Abraham calls him out. And remember in, in Hebrews, it says that a priest is not self-appointed, but that God calls the priests. And so God calls Abraham out of Ur, and he comes to the land that God tells him to go to. But along, all throughout the account of Abraham, we see him, again, doing priestly things. He's making altars, making sacrifices. He's mediating the covenant between God and his creation. And remember, again, the promises of God to Abraham are echoing the garden. So he, God is looking to restore the garden. That's what all of this is about. So when Adam and Eve were told to have dominion, Abraham is promised land to have dominion over. When he is told that he will have descendants that will be like the stars, that's like Adam and Eve being fruitful and multiplying. God wants them to, Abraham and Sarah, to create more image bearers of God, more priests. And then what are they what is promised through them? Blessing. Well, Adam and Eve had blessing. They were in the presence of God, but they lost it. So all of those things that were originally stated in the garden are reiterated in Abraham in the, the promises that God makes to Abraham. So we're seeing a, a pattern developing here. And it's going to continue. And then, talked about a couple weeks ago, the next major step in this priest development of, of the priesthood is when Abraham meets who? Melchizedek. And he is critically important, even though he is one of the most mysterious people in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 14, he's only mentioned for three verses, and he comes out of nowhere, and he disappears. So, and it's, it's interesting that Abraham, you know, the appearance of Melchizedek is bracketed by the king of Sodom on either side. 
but we know that he is, A, his name means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, but that we know that that means king of peace. And these are both terms that are going to be applied to Jesus. He brings out the bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham accepts the blessing and tithes to Melchizedek, gives him a tenth of the spoils of the war that Abraham just miraculously won. We're 318 guys he won against four kings. So God, God's hand was on him. And then, because of that meeting with Melchizedek and Abraham's recognition of the role that Melchizedek plays, it's on that basis, it's not an accident that after receiving the blessing from the king of righteousness, that in the very next chapter, in chapter 15 of Genesis, 15.6, it says that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is a key point. And on the basis of that righteousness, God formally makes a covenant with Abraham, ratifying the promises. So the, the priest, Melchizedek, is mediating the covenant with Abraham, just as Noah was mediating the covenant, and as we're going to see, just as Moses is going to mediate the covenant as a priest. And just as ultimately Jesus Christ will be the high priest who will mediate the new covenant that we talked about last week. Okay, so from there, and we'll just this will kind of bring our review to an end. After uh, Melchizedek, who is the next priest that God's people are going to encounter? Jethro. Before Moses is a priest, Jethro is a priest. And we could see from the structure of the events that Jethro is functioning in the same capacity as Melchizedek. And you can see the, the notes from last week, or was it the week before? I can't remember. Where you have God, just as... Uh, I lost my train of thought. God calls Abraham... Out of Ur, he also calls Moses and, and Israel out of Egypt. And then God delivers them. God delivers them through a major battle, the Amalekites, right after they cross the Red Sea in Exodus. And in Genesis, we see uh, Abraham winning the battle with his 318 men. And after... Abraham wins his victory, he meets Melchizedek, and after Moses meets his, uh, wins his miraculous victory, he meets Jethro, who happens to be his father-in-law. But it says he is a priest of Midian, so he is definitively identified as a priest. And just like with Melchizedek, who is not a Hebrew, Jethro is not a Hebrew. And Jethro blesses Moses... And the, the, the prayer of the blessing is very similar to Melchizedek's prayer of blessing. And then on the basis of that, Moses goes up and, ratif and forms, makes the covenant with Yahweh. So there's a parallel there. And the last bit piece of that puzzle is in the midst of this, God at the Passover called the firstborn of Israel to be his priests. And there's no law for these priests. There's no ceremony or anything like that. This is what we talked about last week. But it's to be written on their hearts. You know, it's known intuitively within them. And Paul says in Romans that, you know, God's law is written on the hearts of the people. And it's looking forward to that firstborn priesthood then being restored in a way that the new covenant in Jeremiah is made where it says that God's law will be written on people's hearts. And even though Christ is functioning as the high priest of Melchizedek, and we'll get to that, he's also functioning in that as a restoration of that priesthood of the firstborn. Why do you think that the New Testament continually drives home the point that Christ is the what? Yeah, he's the firstborn of all creation. He is the one who is the firstborn of all the firstborn, and God has called the firstborn to be his 
priests. So Christ is restoring that which is lost. And now we're going to talk about that which was lost and what comes in its wake, which is the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. Does that make sense? Any questions? That's just kind of a shotgun blast of where we've been the last three weeks now. Has it been three weeks or four weeks? I can't remember. Anyway, okay, so where do we begin with this? Well, who is the critical player in bringing about, I mean, aside from God, in bringing about the priesthood of the tribe of Levi? Yeah, it's Moses. So let's talk about Moses. Is he a priest? Yes, he is a priest. So how do we see him functioning as a priest? Well, countless times we see him building altars and offering sacrifices. And again, these are things in the Old Testament where we see people do it and we just take it for granted. Oh, they're doing that. But those are inherently priestly activities. So when we see them doing that, we should recognize that they are functioning as a priest. And the encounter that Moses has with Melchizedek, uh, with Jethro in chapter 18 of Exodus is in a, lot of, in a lot of ways passing on the baton from Jethro to Moses to function as, in a sense, a priest in that order, in the order of Melchizedek, because he is functioning as a priest outside of the Levitical law that is about to come. Moses is not the firstborn either, Aaron is. So Moses is not functioning within that firstborn priesthood. He's functioning within a priesthood that's already been established, and that was established with Melchizedek. And it's in that sense that Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ. And we really see that when we get to Exodus 32. If you want to turn there, turn to Exodus 32, 31, and 32. So, um, a lot has been going on. Uh, the uh, After chapter 18 in Exodus, Moses goes up onto Sinai. And he has an encounter with God. And it's a doozy. He's given the Ten Commandments. He's given a huge chunk of the law. And while he's up, and you know, the Ten Commandments, that's not something insignificant. I mean, we're all familiar with that. And what are the first two commandments? Mm, that's a summary of the, the first five and the second five. That's okay. The first one is, don't worship anyone but Yahweh. And what's the second one? What? No idols. And while God is giving this to Moses, what's going on at the foot of the mountain? They're breaking the first two commandments right as the Ten Commandments are being given. So, but, 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 I don't want to say that's a good thing because that's not a good thing, but it is part of the establishment of a precedent that is going to be what shows the superiority of Christ. We're going to get there, but let's hold off. So Moses recognizes that the golden calf, I mean, he goes down and he sees what's happened and he goes back up and he he meets with God saying, oh crud, this just happened. But So he and God are having a major encounter up on the mountain. And that's when, first you see it in 32, 11 and 13. He makes this, okay, here's the key. Moses, four times in these chapters, in 32, twice in 32, once in chapter 33, once in 34, 
And these are all part of the same encounter. Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. He is func- the act of intercession is one of, if not the key act of a priest, to intercede on behalf of the people before God. And four times in these chapters here during this encounter with God, we see Moses interceding for these people who just royally blew it. But the key one is 32, 31 and 32. And let me read that to you. He says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people ha- this people has sinned a great sin, for they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So what is he offering? Yeah, he's saying, don't smite them, smite me. Now, what is that foreshadowing? Yeah, it's foreshadowing Jesus Christ. So that priestly role that Moses is playing, we've seen it with Melchizedek, we've seen it with Jethro, and now we see it with Moses, but you have an escalation. He's not, remember, did Abra, who did Abraham intercede with? What? Yeah, kind of in chapter 22, but really there's a, the great act of intercession that Abraham has. Yeah. He intercedes on behalf of the, the people, yeah, for Lot and the people of Sot. So that intercession, so, so Abraham is prefiguring the intercession of Christ. Now with Moses, you have an escalation, though, because he's not just interceding on behalf of the people. He's saying, take me instead. If this will assuage your anger and cause you to forgive my people, kill me. Take your anger out on me. Blot me out. So Moses is prefiguring the, the high priesthood of, of Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, let's move on to the second page. So God, and he, God's, to say he's ticked is kind of an understatement. He is not happy. But because of Moses's relentless intercession, God decides to relent and he will forgive the people. But there are consequences. And the biggest consequence of this is that the priesthood of the firstborn is done. Why? Yeah. It was the whole, the the nation was down there doing this. And those firstborn that were supposed to be priests mediating the nation with God... Oh, and I forgot to admit, in, uh, admit, Rem- remind, remember, in my review in Exodus 4, God calls Israel, the whole nation, his firstborn, and says to Pharaoh, let my firstborn go so that they may what? Serve me. So the whole nation... And God says it in, 19, in chapter 19. He says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. The whole nation is to be serving God. And within that whole nation, the firstborn are to be mediating that priesthood to the whole nation. God, firstborn, nation. But those firstborn did not do their job and allowed the apostasy to take place. What does that remind us of? What? Yes. So, 
again, Adam, I mean, Eve is a priest and Adam is a priest, but Adam was prefiguring the high priest and he did not do his job. He did not prevent the apostasy from taking place. Just as the firstborn did not prevent the apostasy from taking place. And who's the key perpetrator in all of this? Yeah, well, and it just so happens, I think it's in chapter 24 when God is handing down the law to Moses. He has already ordained that Aaron is to be the high priest. So Aaron is supposed to be the high priest, and while God has given him, and remember, Aaron's the firstborn of the family. Moses is the younger brother. So Aaron is being given, but Moses is functioning outside of that priesthood. He's functioning like Melchizedek and Jethro. Remember, Jethro teaches Moses how to do things, so there's a passing of the baton. So Moses is outside of that, but within the rest of Israel, Aaron has now been made the high priest. And while he's been made the high priest, what's he doing? He's down there fashioning the idol. And this is the worst of it. I mean, he performs sacrifices. And then he says, behold, people, this is your God who did what? Took you out of Egypt. So the high priest that God has ordained is fallen down on the job bigger than almost anyone has ever fallen down on the job, except for maybe Adam. So Aaron is, well, he's kind of a villain in a lot of ways. I don't have a lot of patience with Aaron. We're going to get back to him at the end of class. So just we'll circle back to Aaron. But what's the fallout from this? Does Aaron lose his position as high priest? No, who does? The firstborn. So who does God make his priest? Who are the one people that did not follow the golden calf? The Levites. It says that the Le- when Moses got down, he said, all of those who are faithful to Yahweh come to me now. And only the tribe of Levi comes. And so he says, put on your swords and go out. And kill the perpetrators. And it says that 3,000 were killed that day. And they were judged. And who were those 3,000? Probably the firstborn. doesn't say. But it's probably them. They were judged. They fell down on the job in a big way. They're following in Adam's footsteps. <clears throat> so, because, so, because of that loyalty... Because of their service, and remember, service is a priestly word. Because of their service before God that day, the Levites are going to be given a special role and relationship before God. No, he was not. Not only was he not killed... But he is going to be allowed to continue to serve as high priest. It's not. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about that at the end of class. So hang on. Just, you got a thread there. Don't let go of that thread. We're going to circle back to that. It's actually really amazing because through all of this, God has... He has his plan. It's already worked out. Aaron is an inferior priest. He's crummy at his job. But that's, there's a reason for that that's going to be illustrated. And all of this is, everything, creation and everything is being done for what? Yes. And the failures of Aaron are going to make the successes of the great eternal high priest even greater. Does that make sense? We'll get there. Okay. So, where am I? Um, Still on the second page. Okay. 
So move down to section four. It's about halfway down. So because of this event, this failure, there's now a, a sea change in the way that God is going to relate to his people. It's no longer through the firstborn. He is going to medi- the mediators between God and his people are now going to be Levites. Here's the crazy thing. When we talk about the Levitical priesthood, the Levites as a tribe are not priests. They're not. The priests of Israel, when you read about priests in the Old Testament, they are all descendants of Aaron. Rather than calling it the Levitical priesthood, there's only one place in the Bible where it's called that, in Deuteronomy. Other than that, what we really should refer to it as is the Aaronic priesthood, because they are all descendants of Aaron. So not all the Levites are priests. Let's put it this way. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Okay? And that leads us then to the book of Leviticus. What is the book of Leviticus? What? The laws of the Levites? Yeah. Except... It's really not even the laws of the Levites. It's the laws of the descendants of Aaron because it's the laws that govern the priests. Specifically is what the book of Leviticus is about. And Leviticus is one of those books that I think, you know, you look at it and your eyes just go, you just glaze over. It's like I'm done. You know, give me David and his adventures. You know, give me Elijah and his, you know, great perseverance or, you know, something like that. You know what I mean. But Leviticus is like, I don't care about lampstands. (laughs) But the crazy thing is, is that Leviticus is actually one of the most important books in the Bible. And why is that? Okay, let's talk about that. Can anyone tell me what the Pentateuch is? The first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Which book is the middle book? Leviticus. So... When God inspires the text, God likes patterns. What's the thing that I have repeatedly tried to drill into your heads when you read the Bible? What God what God has it's right. What God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. Just remember that. Just drill that into your head. When you read the Old Testament, that should be in the forefront of your mind. You could tie it on your arm or tie it on your forehead. Like, you know, not really. It's not the Word of God. But you know what? I'm just have it there in the front of your mind. Because when you see these patterns, those patterns are there for a reason. When you see a structure to something, the structure is there for a reason. And so Leviticus is what it is and is where it is for a reason. And that's because it is the linchpin, specifically Leviticus chapter 16, is the linchpin of the entire Pentateuch. You know, we would think Genesis or like Exodus with the giving of the Ten Commandments. Those are the key parts of, you know, the the Pentateuch. I mean, it's like it's Abraham and it's Joseph and it's Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that kind of stuff. It's like when you read Exodus, it's pretty easy, I think, at least it was for me as a kid, to read Exodus all the way up to like chapter 17 or even like 13 or 14. Once you got past the Red Sea, it was kind of like, uh, you lost me. But 
It's all there for a reason. So what is Leviticus? Well, let's look at that. You'll notice I have, a, it's called a chiasm. It comes from the Greek word for X. I mean, the symbol that we call X in Greek is chi. So a chiastic structure is something where you kind of have it moving from an outside to a point and then back out. So you have a parallel structure. So obviously this is just half of a chi, but you can see the structure there. And the Pentateuch actually does have a very real and very deliberate structure. So let's talk about that because it's going to lead us to Leviticus 16. So in Genesis, and I'll just, you know, you can read this for yourself. Obviously, you don't need me to explain it, but in Genesis, you have, speaking broadly, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about individual people here, uh, but broadly, the book of Genesis is about God calling his people out to come to the land and, and serve him. And then in Exodus, we have the people coming into God's presence and they commit some massive sin, but God forgives them. What's the sin in Exodus? The golden calf. Right. Okay. Then you get to Leviticus, where God is giving them, giving Aaron and his descendants their specific working instructions. And you have a structure within Leviticus. You have instruction for sacrifices, instruction for the priesthood, what they're to do. You have instruction on what is clean and unclean. And you'll notice that there's a flow going on there that's going to lead to Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Just follow the structure for now, though. Then in Leviticus 17 through 20, you have instruction for what is holy and unholy. You notice it's a parallel, clean and unclean, holy and unholy. No longer do you have instruction the institution and instructions of the priesthood. Now you have the rules for the priests themselves. And then you have instruction for the festivals and sacred activities. So sacrifices at one end, festivals and sacred activities to the other. And then moving back out, once you get to numbers, you have the people, instead of coming into God's presence, you know, in Exodus, they get to where? After the Red Sea. To Sinai. They're coming into God's presence. And from halfway through Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, and then halfway through Numbers, they're still at Sinai. But halfway through Sinai, they depart Sinai. And they sin again. What's the sin that they commit in Numbers? It's a big one. Does anyone know what Kadesh Barnea is? Okay, so they get to Kadesh Barnea. And Moses... Say that again. Exactly right. You're right. They don't believe that God will deliver them. So Moses sends out spies. And they all go. And they come back. And out of... The 12 spies, only two of them say, this is awesome. We're going to do it. Who are the two? Caleb and, and Joshua. The other 10 are like, there is no way we can take this place. And God, because of their lack of faith, God says that they will not go into the land at that time and that the generation that lacked faith will wander in the desert for 40 years and the generation will die out so that their children, the next generation, will be the ones to enter the land. And that's where the book of Joshua begins. So you have, just as you had a change in 
in Exodus with the ending of the priesthood of the firstborn. Now in Numbers, you have a change in who's going to go into the land, who is going to actually enter into God's rest. But God forgives them. I mean, that generation is judged, but the people are not. The nation itself is still going to go. Yeah. They had to wander for the rest of their lives in the desert. That was their judgment. Yes. Well, individually, perhaps, there were, but as a nation, they were judged. But as a nation, they were also not destroyed. Sure. Yeah. Well, more than two, but yeah, it's... So, and then in Deuteronomy, just balancing it out, the people are called to enter into the land of rest. And the book of Deuteronomy is the people have arrived at the River Jordan after wandering for 40 years. And as they are about, as the new generation is about to cross over the River Jordan, Moses gives them the law again. He is reiterating to them the law so that they have it in their hearts and minds as they cross over the river and go into God's rest. Why does Moses need to do that? Because he ain't going. So these are the parting Deuteronomy, and that Deuteronomy, all it is is Greek for the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. So you have this structure in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, where the focal point is Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. That's the only thing in there that doesn't have something to balance it out. What is the Day of Atonement? Is that important? Yeah. That's, that's the day where the high priest... So let's back up. Adam and Eve sinned. They lost blessing. They are out of the presence of God. And now God has called out a people to be his priests, to be a kingdom of priests. And he, you know, even though the priests within the nation have now changed with, from firstborn to Levite, the nation itself is still called to be a kingdom of priests. They are still called, each one of them, to be a part of a group that as a group are mediating Yahweh to the rest of the world. Remember, what's, what is the, the promise that God made to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So in being out in the world and reflecting Yahweh's love to the rest of a fallen world, the nation is to function as priests. They are to mediate God to the rest of fallen humanity. Does that make sense? So even though the priests within the nation have changed, their job is still the same. But for them, the Day of Atonement is the crucial day of the year because that's the day that the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then later into the, in the temple and makes atonement, intercedes for the nation for all the sins that they have committed for that year. And if they don't, if the high priest doesn't do that, then the people, in effect, are not forgiven. So it's a, it's a critical event. And what is that looking forward towards? That act that's done once a year, what is that looking forward to? Yeah, that's looking forward to Jesus performing, in a sense, the same act as it says, once for all. So what's done on a yearly basis by the descendants of Aaron is being done once forever by the firstborn of all creation. So there is an a, a inherently priestly nature to the salvation that Christ offers. He is our great high priest. 
So the fact that Leviticus 16, in, in talking about the Day of Atonement, we should recognize that that chapter, that, that chapter is the focal point of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're all building to or leading away from the Day of Atonement. So someday, you know, it, hope, you know try reading... Leviticus again, but understanding it in a in a context, and the lampstands are still going to sound, you know, like what does this? But well, each one of those things is important, and we're going to talk about why they're important towards the end of the class when I talk about the tabernacle and the temple and and how they all reflect God's throne room. So, but that's not quite in line with what we're talking about now. So I'm going to save that as towards the end as, as a semi-standalone class. So, ultimately, Leviticus is, is a handbook for God's priests, and you can see some of, you know, what that entails in there. And uh, the Levites themselves, as I said before, are not, as a whole, the tribe, are not priests. That's reserved for Aaron and his descendants, but the Levites are to work in and around the tabernacle. And eventually they're going to be given cities of their own. So, and you can see in Numbers 16, I, I mentioned in the notes that the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a Levite, but he basically says to Aaron, why should you be the priest? Why can't I be the priest? And what happens to him? He gets swallowed up by the earth, and the, his 250 followers are consumed with fire. So God has ordained that Aaron will be the high priest, Aaron and his descendants, and, you know, low, you know uh, cursed be him who uh, will go against God's anointed. I mean, Aaron wasn't anointed, but do you think that there's a parallel between Saul and Aaron? Yes, there is. We'll get there. I keep saying that. We've got a little ways to get. We're almost there, though. Okay. Um, the high priest themselves, again, when we get to Hebrews, we're going to talk about Hebrews not next week, but the week after. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, are contrasting the Aaronic high priest with the high priest in the Melchizedekian order, which is what Christ is a part of. And even though they're separate, we can still see foreshadowing of Christ and the work that he does in the high priests in, uh, in the Aaronic line. And one of those ways, I mean, A, you see it in the Day of Atonement, that's a big one. But you also see it with the Levitical cities. So when Joshua, in the, in the law, in Leviticus, there is a, or in Numbers, there's a, yes, it says that there are to be cities in the land that belong to the Levites, and they are to be cities of refuge. So if you have committed a sin or drawn blood of somebody, if you can get to one of those Levitical cities, those cities of refuge, the Levites that are there will protect you, but you must remain in that city until what? Yes, good job. So in a, in a, but once the high priest dies, they are, that person is allowed to leave the city of refuge with no repercussions. And in a sense... The death of the high priest is buying the freedom of those who have sinned. You had a question. Okay. Well, what were you just going to ask? Is that... Because God intentionally is setting it up so that people are, look, are recognizing that the high priest, the death of the high priest is to redeem those who have sinned. Yes, it's all pointing to Jesus. 
So just as on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes into the presence of God and intercedes on behalf of the people. Just as Christ, and here we get into Trinitarian theology. Remember, God is one, eternally is one God, but eternally exists as three persons, and each person is fully God. I know it's complicated. It's a mystery. But Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is our high priest who is eternally in the presence of the Father, interceding on our behalf forever. And it was his death as the high priest who redeemed the sinners. We are free. You see how it all, it all fits together. It's actually, it's really beautiful. It's quite amazing. So, um, oh boy, do I want to talk about this or not? Because I still have just, what? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I am going to, I'm just, I'm trying to reserve, see if I have, if I want to talk about Okay, let's do it for five minutes, and then we'll talk about Aaron. Okay, so you'll notice I've got these shapes down here um, on the bottom of the third page. And this is giving us an idea of how the high priest and the priests and the Levites are all... Uh, part of the same pattern that we see in, well, God's working it out in a variety of ways. So when Moses goes up on Sinai, he leaves the people and he takes with them the elders and the priests, and they go about halfway up, and then they stay there. And then Moses goes up to the top by himself. And what is he, who is he with at the top? He's in the presence of God. And it's crazy. But that is that same ascent up the mountain by the high priest is the same thing that we see in the tabernacle and the temple. Where you have the courtyard where the people are gathered and then you have the holy place. That's, that's the base of the mountain. And then you have the courtyard I mean, uh, the holy place where the priests are at and where they do their work. And that's halfway up the mountain of God. And then the holy of holies is the place where by himself, the high priest goes in and goes into the presence of God. So the tabernacle, the temple are intended to reflect Sinai, sort of. But what it's all intended to reflect is what? The Garden of Eden. That's really what it's all looking back to. So the high priest in his function is looking back to the garden where you have the world and the garden and what's in the center of the garden, the tree. And that's where they encounter God. And there's a reason, and we'll get into this, I'll go into it in detail when I talk about the tabernacle and the temple and stuff. But there's a reason, all the things that are on the curtains and the stones that are used and everything like that, that is used in the tabernacle, are all intended to point the people back to the garden. That's why there's plants and trees and things like that on the curtains as you go through the curtains in the different layers of the tabernacle. Yes, question. Say that again. Absolutely he is. No. Okay. Think about this, okay? Those who have been in my Trinitarian class, Trinitarianism class, have heard this before. But we encounter God, this is a Trinitarian digression here. When we encounter God, we encounter God, the Father, through the Son. What does it say? No man has seen the Father, but if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay, 
Now, when Adam and Eve, I don't know about before the fall, okay? But after they fall, who comes walking through the garden? God. Are they sinners at that point? You bet they are. Can they, if they looked on the Father, they would have been obliterated. It was the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, that was present in the garden when they fell, that pronounced the curses on the snake and Adam and Eve. That is Jesus. Does that make sense? Because that he is God, but he's not the Father. And if they saw the Father, they would have been gone. So let's talk about that. Let's go to the, the last page, because that's, that's actually on point for the last page. And so I talked about this, uh, I don't know, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before that, when I was talking about grace and Moses' encounter with God on Sinai, and at one of those points where he asks God to forgive the people, and God says, I will have mercy on those whom I will have mercy, and I will be gracious on those whom I will have be gracious. And then Moses says, let me see your glory. Like, well, that's pretty forward. And God says, okay, I'm, you go climb in this crack, and I'm going to cover up the crack, and I'm going to pass my goodness past you, and you can look and kind of see me from behind, but if you saw me face to face, you would be obliterated. So talking about who they encountered in the garden, it's the same thing. And so that happens. Moses sees God, but what's, he, what's Moses like afterwards? Yeah, he's radiant. He's glowing. And incidentally, the Hebrew word that is used there. Has anyone ever seen Michelangelo's statue of Moses? Notice that he has horns? You ever notice that? <laughs> Go look it up. So the Hebrew word there for, for shown, like showing, his face shined, is karan. The Hebrew word for horn is karin. There's no vowels in Hebrew. They have the same QRN structure. So it's only the Masoretes that pointed it. If you see it without the vowel points that were added later, you don't know which word is which. So a lot of people read the Hebrew and just said, oh, look, his face horned. And so that's why you see in the Middle Ages a lot of depictions of Moses with horns on his head. But what it's really saying, I mean, a horn is projecting outward, right? That's, what it, that's really what the, the, thr- the force of the Hebrew word is is that, you know, Moses' face is projecting outward. He shined, he glowed, he was shimmering. Who else shined and glowed and shimmered? When? On the transfiguration. Yeah. Except he was not reflecting God's glory. He was God's glory. As it says in Hebrews 1, 3, you know, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And you, so, but there's another important detail to draw from this event. And that is if you look back at the regulations for how the high priest is to dress, the garments that the high priest wears is all supposed to hearken back to that glowing priest that was Moses when he encountered God. So when the high priest goes into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he's coming out. He's wearing these glowing clothes in effect. But the reason he's wearing all the things he's wearing is to remember back to that glowing high priest that was Moses. But really, using that as the jumping off point, looking forward to the great shining high priest that is Jesus Christ. So the garments of the high priest are very intentional, pointing us to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's really amazing how it all fits together. Okay, so we have just a few minutes left, so let's talk about Aaron. Now this is the Aaron bashing session. I'm sorry, Aaron. 
Okay. So, the priesthood of Aaron, like the kingship of Saul. Remember, what is Christ? He is prophet, priest, and king. So you're going to see prophets and kings and priests and all of their various ways all pointing towards Christ in some capacity. So just as Saul was the people's choice and was a king who fell short, so too is Aaron, as we saw at the golden calf, was the people's choice. And he too, and here's the key part, and his descendants will also fall short. The Aaronic priesthood is never intended to be the final priesthood. It was going to be a failure from day one. Now, there may be good priests in there, and there were. But ultimately, the line of Aaron as high priest was a line that would fail. Think about this. God, was Saul a concession to the people? They said, give us a king. And God's like, eh, I don't think you want that. You know, Samuel, speaking for God, like he's going to put a big yoke on you and make you guys work hard. But did they say, give it to me anyway? Yeah. And so God, he what? He conceded and said, okay, here you go. And you're going to get it good and hard. The same thing is the case with Aaron. Now think about when does Aaron really enter into the narrative in Exodus? Aaron himself is a concession to God. Because just as the people were hard-hearted and they wanted it their way with Saul, they wanted a king, so too did Moses. He was hard-hearted. He said, but God, I don't want to go because of this. But God, I don't want to go because of this. But God, I don't want to go because of this. Five times, and it finally says, and God's wrath was kindled against him. And as a concession, God says, okay, you can take Aaron. So from the very beginning, Aaron's role is a concession by God that is not his desired course of action. And just as Aaron, just as Saul ultimately will be supplanted by the king who is a man after God's own heart, so too is Aaron going to be supplanted by a priest who is a man after God's own heart? Because he is God. He is Jesus Christ. So the priesthood of Aaron was doomed to failure from the very beginning. Even though his first association with Moses was concessive, was, a, was not a positive development. And you can see that he fails right away. I mean, God says, go to, Mo- go to Pharaoh and show him all these signs. Show him the wonders. And Moses and Aaron go, and they just say, hey, let my people go. And nothing happens. And God says, go back. So, and then they finally throw their staffs on the ground, and, you know, that, they turn to snakes. And, but from the, from the get-go with Aaron along, Moses isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. So Aaron is a failure from day one. He's also a giant failure when he apostatizes, I can't, apost, you know what I mean, apostates, I, that's not the right word and I can't think of it right now, but you know what, what I'm trying to say. He blasphemes with the golden calf. What a great way to start off your priesthood. And then once they finally get everything straightened out and Aaron is finally, okay, I am now the high priest. What happens? But his sons go in and they try to perform rites in the Holy of Holies with strange fire. And God strikes them down. So the priesthood of Aaron is a inferior priesthood from the very beginning. God has conceded to the people, okay, I will give you that 
which you have asked for. But ultimately, it's going to be replaced. And it's not going to be replaced by Christ. I mean, it will be replaced by Christ. But it doesn't have to wait for Christ before it's replaced. Who's going to, be the, who's going to come along and replace it? No. We're going to talk about, this is what we're going to talk about next week's. David. David, the king, is going to supersede the high priest. And David will be the king priest in the order of Melchizedek that is looking forward to Christ who will be the king priest. So next week we're going to talk about David as priest. And not just David, but other kings, Hezekiah, Josiah, who functioned in the high priestly capacity. So stay tuned for next week. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, And that's a good place to stop. Any questions? Yes, Aaron and Moses are both Levites. So the high priest is a Levite. And in that sense, it's fair to call it the Levitical priesthood, especially, in, and that's a term that does appear in the Bible, but it also we use in English because all the priestly regulations are in the book of Leviticus. So we call it the Levitical priesthood. But really, it's the Aaronic priesthood because they're all descendants of Aaron. Yes. So Aaron was the outlier. At the golden calf, Aaron was the outlier. The rest of Levi said, oh no, we're with Yahweh. And that's when God said, okay, firstborn, you guys have forsaken me. Levites, you're in. You're, the, you're doing it now. But those high priests and the priests... The priestly order is now Aaron and his descendants. God's going to keep Aaron on, but ultimately it's, it was never intended to succeed. It's ultimately going to be superseded by the priestly order of Mel- that we first see in Melchizedek and, and Christ will perfect. Any questions? Any more? Okay, let's close in prayer. I'm happy to take questions afterwards too if you want. So, okay. Lord, I thank you again for your word. It is a marvelous and beautiful thing to see how from beginning to end it all fits. Now, there are layers that you have given us that we haven't even begun to, to see, or we are only be now beginning to glimpse. I pray that you will give us hearts and minds that will be driven to mine after the jewels and treasures that lie within your word. I thank you for this opportunity to discuss it for those who seek after it. I pray that you will use this to edify us and ultimately to educate us so that we know that we are your priests and we know what we need to do as your priests. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks, everyone.